0: This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. Paying someone to offset your carbon footprint holds a lot of appeal, but the reality is complicated.
1: If the system works perfectly, then every carbon credit cancels out a real ton of CO2 that is emitted. And when the system doesn't work perfectly, you end up with a net increase in CO2 emissions.
0: Carbon offset markets have been plagued by scandal and failure for years. Right now, the offset market is broken.
2: So it's really hard for buyers of offsets to filter out what are the real credits and what are the false credits.
0: A new nonprofit wants to buy emissions permits from regulated markets and lock them away so other polluters can't buy and
3: use them. And each permit you take out is effectively reducing the cap.
0: Is there a better way to regulate and use carbon offsets? Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. For more than two decades, carbon offset programs have promised individuals and businesses that they can reduce their overall carbon footprint by paying someone else, somewhere else, to reduce their emissions. But in practice, this often doesn't accomplish the intended climate benefit. Lisa Song is a reporter for ProPublica who covers the environment, energy, and climate. In a series of stories earlier this year, she detailed how one specific forest carbon offset program in California failed to deliver on its climate goals and actually resulted in more carbon emissions being released into the atmosphere. Later in the show, we'll explore some possible ways to improve the system. First, though, Climate One producer Ariana Brocious speaks with Lisa Song about her reporting.
4: Can we start with some basics here for people who maybe don't understand the nitty gritty of carbon offsets? How do carbon offsets work at the most basic level?
1: Basically, carbon offsets are about paying somebody else somewhere in the world to reduce their carbon emissions and then claiming those reduced emissions as your own. One of the things about climate change is that no matter where the carbon emissions come from, they all end up in the same atmosphere and all help fuel climate change. So if you are a company somewhere that perhaps would need to spend a lot of money to reduce your own emissions, if the government allows it, you could spend less money and pay someone somewhere else to reduce their emissions.
4: And so do those work the same if, say, I take a flight and I want to offset the carbon footprint of my trip is that the same as a company who um, wants to pollute more, or maybe is limited in how much they can pollute or burn fossil fuels um, in this case, and and buys an offset for that purpose.
1: They are similar in the sense that it's all about paying someone else to reduce emissions. But if you are someone who is flying and wants to offset your own emissions, you're likely buying carbon offsets from what's called the voluntary marketplace. That means you're buying emissions reductions that help you feel better, but they are not being accounted for in some sort of government mandated climate program. Whereas what's happening in places like California is they have a government mandated climate goal and they are counting every ton of CO2 that goes into the air. And those carbon offsets in California are part of this Mandatory emissions reductions program. So, in the compliance market, if you are a major polluter, the government has regulations that force you to reduce your emissions by a certain amount.
4: And so, in either case, I'm kind of curious why so many of the carbon offset programs that are available take the form of protecting land like forest that already exists, as opposed to things like planting new forest or um, other kinds of carbon absorbing tools that we may have?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think part of the answer has to do with that there is a huge push for good reason for conservation and for biodiversity. And there's no doubt that we need to preserve the existing forests we have, particularly a lot of tropical forests and rainforests, in order to help meet our climate goals. Um, protecting forests is definitely good for the environment and for climate change. And I think in some ways, by by emphasizing these forest protection-based carbon offsets, you are allowing people to fulfill two goals at once. The first one is reducing emissions in the atmosphere, and the second one is forest conservation. The problem, of course, is that we are documenting cases where these programs aren't working as advertised.
4: Right, and I wanna get into that in just a second. Part of the rationale for using existing forests also might be just that they're already a big carbon sink, right, and the loss of them would sort of further exacerbate the situation we're in.
1: Right, so forests, and particularly forests that have a lot of carbon-rich tree species, uh, bigger trees that can store a lot of carbon, they've been pulling down CO2 from the atmosphere for decades, if not centuries. And if you were to cut down those forests because you need lumber or because you need to clear the forest to graze cattle or something, then you are releasing into the atmosphere a huge amount of stored carbon that's been stored for decades. And so the idea with these offsets is you pay people to preserve their forests and keep the trees standing instead of cutting them down. And then you give them credit for preventing those emissions.
4: And how do those programs, the carbon offsets, fit in with larger cap-and-trade programs like California's cap-and-trade program?
1: There are different ways that you can fit a carbon offset program into cap-and-trade. But in California, the way it works is that companies have to reduce their emissions by a certain amount every year. And they can one way they can do that is through cap-and-trade where they can maybe uh, buy excess um, permits for emissions from other companies that don't need them, or they can buy them from the state at auction. Um, Some companies also receive those emissions permits for free. and, And of course, there's the trade part where if you have excess permits, you can sell it to another polluter. But the state also gives them an option where they can reduce a certain amount of their emissions, by buying carbon offsets instead. And so the state of California, through the Air Resources Board, has set up this carbon offset program where they're encouraging everyday landowners in the country to enroll their forests in carbon offsets. And then those offsets generated can be purchased by the polluters that are regulated under the cap-and-trade program.
4: And your reporting for ProPublica has revealed that that program, California's Carbon Offset Forest program, has actually allowed a lot more carbon to be released into the atmosphere, right? Why is that?
1: Basically, it comes down to the rules as they were written. Uh, Our story was reporting on a study that came out of a nonprofit. And basically, the study showed that when the Air Resources Board wrote up the rules for the carbon offset program, the way they set up the rules sort of opened up these loopholes that allowed the system to be gamed. So what the study shows is not that anybody is breaking the rules, but actually that there are systemic flaws built into the rules themselves. The technical flaws are, are pretty complicated, but basically once you've picked the forest that will be enrolled in the offsets program, you would do a survey of the trees in that forest to figure out how much carbon is stored per acre in your forest. Then what you do is you compare that number to the amount of carbon stored in a typical forest of a similar type as your forest. And these typical forest numbers are called regional averages, and they're all Calculated and established by the Air Resources Board. The problem is that these regional averages have been calculated using coarse data that doesn't take into account a lot of the nuances between different types of trees and different types of tree species. And what the carbon plan scientists discovered was they found a pattern where people are choosing to place offset projects in forests with very carbon-rich trees, where the types of trees in their forest don't resemble the types of trees that went into calculating the regional average. And it's this skewing of the types of forests and the skewing of the difference that ends up inflating the carbon savings you're generating.
4: So just to kind of recapture what you said, how did that then result in there being more carbon emissions being released when the actual goal is to reduce them or limit them.
1: Right. Because every time a company buys carbon offsets, uh, you know, let's say a company, a polluter in California needs to reduce their emissions by 5 million tons that year, and they buy 5 million carbon credits, that then gives them the right to emit 5 million tons of CO2. So the polluters' emissions of CO2 are real, all those 5 million tons, even if the 5 million carbon credits they purchased are not all real. So you end up, you know, if the system works perfectly, then every carbon credit cancels out a ton, a real ton of CO2 that is emitted. And when the system doesn't work perfectly, every carbon offset that is not real you are not balancing out the real emissions, and so you end up with a net increase in CO2 emissions.
4: right. Okay. So I think there are some proponents of carbon offsets who would say that it's an inexact science, right? And that there's going to be some um, loss or it's not it's not going to be precise in every case. But there are cases where those landowners may not have even been planning to log their forest,
1: right? Yes, and that's a that's a separate issue. Uh, On the carbon accounting regional averages issue, which was the focus of the carbon plan study, they found that overall, those flaws created up to 39 million carbon credits that aren't achieving real carbon savings. Separately, the study also pointed to the fact that one of the biggest questions we always have with carbon offsets is... A carbon offset is only real if you are saving trees that would otherwise have been cut down. Because if the landowner was never going to log the trees, then they were never in danger and those emissions never would have been emitted anyway. And it's a very difficult thing to uh, prove what somebody would have done if the carbon offsets didn't exist. So this is a, a perpetual problem in assessing offset programs. And in California, what we were able to find was that there are certain cases such as with the um, uh, Massachusetts Audubon Society, where what the society said in their paperwork was that they would have, or they could have cut down a ton of their trees to a level that wasn't very realistic for a conservation group. And so that showed this other weakness in the program is that it's unclear how many of the carbon offsets are not real because the landowner would not have realistically cut down those trees. The reason why the California program is so important is that a lot of people, not just in the US, but around the world, look at California's cap and trade program as an example of something that really works and as one of the best carbon reduction systems in the world. And therefore, if people are just following in these rules without really scrutinizing them, then you run the risk of exporting these flaws to other states and countries.
4: I'm speaking with Lisa Song, a reporter at ProPublica covering the environment, energy, and climate change. And we should note that the California Air Resources Board, who, as you said, designed this program, objects to some of your findings. What is their critique and how did you respond?
1: Their critique is that their program is legit and they don't agree with the flaws that the study authors pointed out. Uh, I will say that we did give them a full chance to respond uh, weeks before we published the story. We sent them the complete study and its detailed methodology. They didn't really comment on the specifics of the study itself or its methods. We also took pains to try and really talk to them and offered to talk on the phone starting months before we published, and they refused to give us a single phone interview.
4: So based on your reporting, what would be ways to improve this program or this kind of a program and avoid some of that overcrediting that's been occurring?
1: Really the key way to solve this is to recalculate those regional averages that are so important to figuring out carbon credits. And the carbon plan scientists in their paper offer one way of recalculating those regional averages. What they basically did was, for every project in the program, they calculated what they believe is a more accurate version of the regional average by using data from tree species that more closely resemble the actual mix of trees in the project itself. So there's a
4: roadmap if the California Air Resources Board wanted to look into into that.
1: Yes, yes, there is. And, you know, the carbon plan folks have offered their very exact version of the calculations and explained how they did it. There are undoubtedly other methods that you could recalculate the regional averages, and those would be very detailed scientific decisions and methods to discuss. And it is in the power of the Air Resources Board to figure that out and see if they want to do some version of that.
4: So another aspect of your reporting I found interesting is that tribes have kind of a mixed experience with this program. Can you explain some of the tribes that have been, that have participated and what those mixed experiences have been?
1: Sure. Uh, so one of the tribes is the Yurok tribe in California, and they have participated in at least two different carbon offset projects on their land. They have gained a lot of money from these programs and they have used some of that money to help buy back some of their ancestral lands and some of that money you know has gone to various cultural programs as well i um interviewed someone from a different tribe the hoopa the valley tribe where at least so far the tribe is not inclined to participate in carbon offsets they don't like the idea of giving somebody else the right to emit more CO2. So there's obviously mixed feelings and mixed opinions among different tribes on whether they want to participate. And another thing we want to be clear on is that you can have great conservation benefits and cultural and economic benefits from the programs even if the CO2 savings are less than what was promised. And one of the key questions is, Are we willing to accept these flaws in the carbon math if it means we are getting these benefits in conservation? But can we even make that decision if we don't know for sure what percentage of the offsets are real?
4: Well, Lisa Song, thanks for joining us here on Climate One.
1: Thanks for having me. You're
0: listening to a Climate One conversation about re-examining carbon offsets. Coming up, we dig into why many current carbon offsets don't work.
2: Measuring emissions reductions from offsets is inherently uncertain, and that uncertainty means that there's wiggle room in interpreting quality. So when that uncertainty meets this industry that's stacked against quality, it's very hard to pull it back and and get high quality results.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. Barbara Hay is director of the Carbon Trading Project at the University of California, Berkeley. Michael Greenstone is the Milton Friedman Distinguished Service Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago and founder of the new nonprofit Climate Vault, which aims to fix some of the problems with carbon offsets we heard about earlier with Lisa Song. Voluntary carbon offsets are widely available, for example, for individuals buying airplane tickets and for businesses eager to look green. In some places, customers filling up their gas tanks see a notice saying the entire emissions of that fuel are offset by funding forest programs far away. The driver pays a small additional price to feel good about negating their climate impact. I asked Michael Greenstone if offsets like that work as advertised.
3: Well, it's a terrific idea. Uh, And I think its starting point is a frustration that people have that government policy is not addressing the climate uh, crisis in the way that is merited. And in the absence of like robust government policy, people want to do something about their climate footprint. And being able to offset your emissions at the uh, fuel pump is a terrific idea. It's, uh, it's a terrific idea. It allows people to participate. The challenge has been that these products or offsets have been available for about a quarter of a century, uh, and uh, you know every year there's a quote-unquote new scandal indicating that the offsets are failing to deliver uh, the carbon reductions. And at some point you begin to ask yourself, is it actually a new scandal anymore? Mm-hmm.
0: Is it structurally built into the these things that are f- inherently flawed? So do you, what do you think? Is this, you know, do you trust carbon markets?
3: Well, so I think we should be specific. I trust uh, compliance markets, uh, which are markets set up by governments uh, to restrict CO2 emissions. I think these voluntary offset markets uh, have a really checkered past uh, and you know, the storyline is mon- uh, kind of a manana line tomorrow, we're going to get this right. Uh, and, uh, I, I think after 25 years, it's time to find a way for people to be able to express their desire and organizations for that matter, uh, to reduce their carbon footprint. And I think we should stop, you know, what's a quote. Uh, it's only insane if you keep doing the same thing when it doesn't work over and over. Uh, and we should look for a new approach. So there's two markets. There's a
0: compliance market, which are required companies, power plants, et cetera, required to reduce, measure and reduce their carbon emissions. And then there's the voluntary markets, which is you and me wanna offset a flight or are are driving. And that's the market that, Michael, you're saying is, is problematic. Uh, Barbara, when governments and companies stay, started designing ways to cut carbon pollution, they naturally wanted to do that at the lowest cost. They could do that directly by cleaning up smokestacks and tailpipes or indirectly by building clean energy or preserving forests somewhere else. Is that misguided? Is, is that the right way to go about it?
2: So, I mean, I I agree very much with Michael that it's a compelling idea that isn't working and hasn't worked and hasn't worked for 20, 25 years. And I've thought a lot about why it hasn't worked for, you know, over two decades. And I think the problems are really built into the structure of the market. So basically... What I see is that, um, you know, we really know how to measure emissions. It's much harder to measure emissions reductions. There's a lot more uncertainty in measuring emissions reductions because you have to measure them against what would likely have happened without the, the carbon finance, without the offset income.
0: What's called the ad- additionality or additive, right? That's a key thing.
2: Yeah. So well, one of the key issues is when... You know, when a forest land owner uh, participates and claims that they would have clear cut their forest were it not for the offset income, would they really have done that? Would that the wind power developer, did they really need that offset income to go forward? And there have been real problems with the offset industry allowing in a wide range of projects, um, many of which would have happened anyway. That's one problem. The other problem is when you're measuring emissions against what would likely have happened anyway. There's also a question of even if the project really is, quote, additional, if it really did need the offset income, what is that scenario? What would likely have happened otherwise? That's also a key uncertainty.
3: You know, could I just jump in here for a second, Greg? Uh, I think I agree with everything Barbara's saying, and let me just add one more thing as, you know, maybe the cynical economist here. nobody really has the incentives to get it right who's at the table. The parties at the table are basically Greg Dalton, who wants to offset his emissions when he is filling up his gas tank. He wants to feel good about that.
0: Well, I drive electric cars. I don't have a gas tank, but someone else. yes, okay, someone else. <laughs>
3: uh, the forestry project, the guy who runs the forestry project, He uh, he's at the table too. He sure would like some money, and as Barbara just described, He can basically say anything uh, about what he was going to do in some alternate world. Uh, And then sometimes, and often then there's like a middleman in between think of them as like a consultant. That consultant is probably getting paid by both sides at least. uh, And their job is at some level to kind of produce projects. And so everyone is kind of in on the deal on the transaction. Like Greg Dalton, who had a, Gas car, maybe in some point in the past. Uh, The consultant is in on the deal and the forestry person's in on deal. Now, who's missing, who's not at the table? The entity who's not at the table is the planet. Uh, and you, what does the planet care about? They only care about emissions of CO2. They don't care that Greg feels good uh, about all say his emissions. They don't care that the forestry guy got a little extra money for saying that he would have cut down his trees. And they don't care that the consultant got some money. Like The planet only cares about emissions, and yet they're not at the table. And so given that confluence of incentives, I think it's not terribly surprising when combined with Barbara's good point about how difficult it is to measure uh, avoided emissions, it's not very surprising that we're getting the results for 25 years that we've been getting.
0: There's another person missing. The last time Barbara and I talked a couple years ago, uh, the episode included Pauline Kalunda, the executive director of EcoTrust Uganda. She said, you know, the way people in developing countries approach carbon offsets is actually from the adaptation perspective. We live at the front line and are affected by climate change. So from a developed country, it comes as you're offsetting your footprint. And in developing countries, it comes as I'm building my resilience. So there's another piece there. There's another person at that table, which is someone in the developing country who receives capital, money from rich countries to help them fight climate change. Is that a bad thing, Barbara?
2: No, it isn't. And okay, so first thing, can I just follow up really quickly on what Michael said? I totally agree with everything that you just said. And just to pull it all together, measuring emissions reductions from offsets is inherently uncertain. And that uncertainty means that there's wiggle room in interpreting quality. So when that uncertainty meets this industry that's stacked against quality, it's very hard to pull it back and and get high quality results.
0: So it's imperfect information in the marketplace.
3: So about... (laughs) But but, but Greg, you've raised another really important issue is, hey, wait, wait, wait." oftentimes there's some other goal uh, that might be to build climate resiliency uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. It might be any of a myriad of other goals. And often those goals are very laudable uh, and hard to be against, in fact, easy to be for I think the challenge is, though, uh, we are at an incredibly urgent moment with uh, the climate crisis, and my view is that we have to be like a laser on tons, 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 that is tons of CO2. And once you start admitting that there are projects that have multiple goals, again, the planet's not at the table. The planet really just wants fewer tons of CO2. Uh, and I I think, you know, when you have multiple goals and flexibility and measurement, like it should not be surprising that we're getting the result we're getting.
0: Right. Well, I'm actually interested. You know, I read a um, report recently uh, that, that came out from your institute, Michael, uh, and it's the U.S. Energy and Climate Roadmap. And I frankly was surprised to see in the second paragraph reference to Jim Crow and persistent racial and income disparities in our country. I honestly did not expect that so prominently uh, from a University of Chicago report known as a bastion of conservatism. Um, but that gets
3: to- Wait, you know, hold on, Greg. You- uh, hold on. Let me object to that. Like, uh, bastion of conservatism is not the same thing as racism. Okay. Um In fact, I would say that they're like a thousand miles apart.
0: Okay. Some people might... You know, question, question that, but uh, thank you. The, the, would that have happened before America's unfolding racial reckoning? And what I'm getting at here is that you know, that, that report said well, no, no, you know, hold on, we're getting a little another... far
3: field here. Uh, like a the bastion conservatism is a belief in the use of markets, uh, to help solve social problems, uh, and uh, grow incomes and things like that that doesn't mean taking you know uh, that's not that is not the same thing is very decidedly not the same thing as discrimination it's decidedly not the same thing as uh, subjugation subjugation of people based on their race or a variety of other you know morally repugnant things that you've raised
0: Right. I guess some people would say that American capitalism was initially founded on slave labor, so that sort of, you know, racism is deeply. That's fine, but
3: that's like a very different thing than talking about like uh, economic advice. Like, there's, you would not find a single economist at the University of Chicago who is advocating uh, for forced labor or slavery or anything like that. That's a, you know, that's a conflation that.
0: Okay, fair enough. Um, so we're, we're talking about offsets and offsets there there are there's some dimension of of offsets which is directing money toward people who've been disadvantaged whether it's in in, in poor countries or in poor neighborhoods and one of the criticisms of offsets is um, so there's a generation of, of capital and, and money flow here that some people want to address um, either current harms or past harms and I think your your report you know gets at that and it is that a, a useful part of offsets if it helps generates money. In California, there's a carbon market. 35% of the money is supposed to go toward disadvantaged communities. Um, And one of the criticisms of offsets is that it allows people to clean up another country, but they don't clean up their backyard.
3: Yeah, so there's a mix of issues there, Uh, I I think. There are a series of laudable uh, environmental justice goals out there, and I I think the question that I, I am focused on uh, is, uh, can we achieve those, no, that's critically important too. but is it necessary to compromise the goals for confronting the climate crisis? And that is boils down to uh, reducing tons of CO2, and that's what offsets are supposed to offer. Uh, and what I've been trying to say is that for the last quarter century, they have had a very uh, checkered record on that. And, you know, and if you want to achieve multiple goals, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But then you should acknowledge from the start uh, this is not really uh, about re- reducing tons of CO2. This is not undoing, you know, the person who wants to undo filling up their gas tank uh, uh, mm-hmm. of their car. Mm-hmm. It's maybe achieving other goals. Uh, those goals uh, could be critical and urgent social goals. But in terms of what the planet cares about, tons, 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 uh, they are not hitting the mark.
0: Barbara, how do you see that environmental justice and race factor in the whole system of carbon offsets? So two two
2: thoughts there. One is that when you're talking about a cap-and-trade program, a, a set of um, climate policies, it's really important to take many issues into account, not just carbon. We need to recraft our, our economy to drive this transition towards zero zero emissions really as quickly as we can. That will involve many changes and interact with many other policies. And I do. it's really clear that in order for that to be effective it needs to take many issues into account to be politically supported. But if we're talking about the voluntary offset market A few thoughts there is that, one, right now the offset market is broken, so it's really hard for buyers of offsets to filter out what are the real credits and what are the false credits. In that context, um, I think we need to rethink what offsets essentially are. Offsets are presented as verified, quantified tons of emissions reductions, and they aren't that because of the uncertainty. What offsets are is a way for individuals and companies and others to support uh, climate projects, climate programs that result in some very hard to estimate for most project types, emissions reductions. And in that context, we can really think about offsets the way they truly are today as a charitable contribution. And if what you're doing is taking on a very deep target, like a company taking on a carbon neutrality goal, I think there's real reason for them to look closely at what their values are and think carefully about how can they have the greatest impact on climate change mitigation with the funds that they're spending and also how does that match their other other values.
0: So in 2019, Google said it had eliminated its entire legacy of carbon emissions through high-quality offsets. How much confidence do you have that that is really happening? You know, who's auditing that claim? I
2: mean, the devil is in the details, right? And, and how much Google is really vetting um, the projects that they support as offsets, um, My understanding from just really just reading the news is that they are doing the type of vetting that's really needed and that they're um, forward looking in the offset market by building, developing some of their own projects and really focusing on renewable energy and reducing their own emissions. And if they are indeed doing all of those things, that's what needs to be done.
0: So it comes down to trust and, and, and
3: brand. Um, You you know, my sense is that uh, Google and Microsoft and maybe just a handful of other places uh, really are doing the kind of vetting that Barbara has in mind, Uh, but that does not describe uh, the vast majority of offsets. Uh, In fact, I I, I can tell you uh, uh, there's a very high profile uh, technology company who I had a conversation with who... Uh, was proudly talking about a forestry project uh, in a conversation I was having with them. And I said, oh, and, you know, they said how much they'd spent on it. And I said, oh, uh, you know, how many tons of CO2 did you get for that? And there was kind of silence. And they said, well, you know, we never thought to ask that question.
0: Whoa, isn't that the main point? So we're talking about sort of the systems level. Let's get to the individual level. You know, if I'm a person who wants to offset it, you know, um, should I do this? Or, you, Barbara, you mentioned this is kind of a charitable contribution, that it might make you feel good, it might do some good, not as much as you think or they say. Is that where you come down on, on personal, individual carbon offsets?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing you should always do is to reduce your own emissions, and then if you want to do more um, to cover your ongoing emissions, I think it's really helpful to think of offsets like a charitable contribution and support a project or an organization that you know and trust.
3: You know, I have a different view than Barbara, actually. I think a, Barbara's articulating a very popular viewpoint, which is that the first thing we should do is we should reduce our own emissions, take fewer flights, uh Uh, drive less, all kinds of things like that. I think that's fine if people want to do that. Uh, But I want to come back to the dream here. The dream is that there's such a thing as a reliable offset that's inexpensive. Uh, And if there were a reliable offset that were inexpensive, I don't think people should be embarrassed to lead whatever life they want to lead, and then just offset it. But, you know, the critical thing is that it be done in a reliable and transparent way, and uh, you know that is why I started Climate Vault.
0: You're listening to a conversation about rethinking the carbon offset market. Coming up, Michael Greenstone explains the idea behind his new nonprofit, Climate Vault.
3: We are purchasing these permits, taking them out of the market and putting them in the vault, as it were. And what we are going to do with them is use them to launch the world's first large-scale ecosystem for carbon removal.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. University of Chicago economist Michael Greenstone says his new nonprofit, Climate Vault, was born out of frustration over the historical failure of offsets.
3: And the core idea of Climate Vault uh, is Let's not write these super complicated contracts between people filling up their gas tank uh, and some person running a forest farm in Brazil or Maine or wherever it is. Let's just press the easy button. Governments around the world have set up what are called cap and trade markets uh, uh, for CO2. And in those cap and trade markets, they set a maximum allowable uh, amount of CO2 emissions. uh, And then everyone who pollutes has to hold a permit and there's only print as many permits as the max, uh, that adds up to the total they've allowed. And why not just go into those markets and outbid polluters for the permits? And each permit you take out is effectively reducing the cap. And the great, it, there's two great advantages of that. One, don't have to hire a third party consultant. You don't have to have doubt uh, about uh, whether or not there was a reduction in CO2 emissions. The governments, uh, you're free riding on the government's enforcement capabilities. and they, they do enforce the rules. Uh, and the second is if you're looking for bang for the buck, that is as much carbon reduction as possible for every dollar you spend, that's the exact purpose of those markets. Those markets are returning to you, telling you where you can get the cheapest uh, reduction in CO2. So you don't have to become an expert on tree farms in Maine or Brazil or the Ukraine or wherever it is. Uh, the markets are, you know, totally giving you that information for free.
0: So that's a kind of a merging of the voluntary individual carbon markets and the compliance markets so I can buy and uh, take away some uh, pollution that's happening in my home state, California. Barbara, is that a good thing?
2: So let me ask you a question, Michael. Yeah, theoretically, each allowance equals the permit to emit. And if you take allowances out of the market, each credit uh, leads to a ton of reductions somewhere in the in California in the ten-year cap and trade program period, but in practice, isn't the market a bit more malleable than that for two reasons? One, there's currently a large oversupply of allowance credits on the market, and estimates of that oversupply are that they equal about the total expected effect of the cap and trade program on emissions from 20. 20- 21 to 2030, this this next uh, uh, period. Um, And what that is expected to do is to keep prices close to the floor. So if you take credits out of that market, you're reducing the oversupply, you're increasing prices just a little bit, but the actual effect of increasing those prices is uncertain And then the the second thing is, doesn't California constantly calibrate its suite of climate policies to make sure that it meets its 2030 target and to keep cap and trade allowance prices at politically palatable levels? So isn't there always that sort of regulatory response to changes in in allowance prices?
3: Yeah. So I think what Barbara's brought up are two important and subtle points. Uh, the first is, is the cap really a cap? Uh, I think that would maybe be uh, a way to summarize her first point. Uh, and uh, she is correct. There are uh, what are called uh, floor prices and ceiling prices. Uh, and, you know, the short version is as long as the prevailing price in those markets uh, is between the floor and the ceiling, then the cap is the cap. Uh, and that, has, that is true in the California market. Uh, it's true in the Reggie market, which is another cap and trade market. Uh, and that's something that we monitor very closely. And if we see the prices getting near the floor of the cap, then uh, we would just switch purchases uh, to a different market that didn't have this uh, that didn't have this risk. Uh, so I, I think uh, so in answer to Barbara's question, uh, yes, that is a concern. Uh, and uh, but it's something we monitor very closely. And uh, given the current price and the projected price, you know, five, six, seven years out, uh, I, I don't see a reason uh, to be concerned about that. But let me come to the second part of what Climate Vault does, which I think is really kind of a decisive reply uh, to Barbara's important point. Uh, and the second part of what Climate Vault does is, uh, on behalf of individuals and organizations who want to reduce their carbon footprint, uh, we are purchasing these permits, taking them out of the market and putting them in the vault, as it were. Uh, we're collecting them. We have more than 200,000. I, I think by the time uh, this this airs, we're likely to have more than half a million of those, uh, of those permits. Uh, and uh, what we are going to do with them is use them to launch the world's first large scale ecosystem for carbon removal. And in practice, uh, what we're gonna do is make a public announcement and say, any carbon removal firm that can come forward uh, and uh, and these carbon removal technologies pull CO2 out of the atmosphere, it's much easier to monitor uh, than uh, the forestry projects. Uh, And anyone who can come and do that, we will trade you a permit Uh, for if you do at least a ton, we'll give you a permit. Uh, And what that means is we are then liberated from any of the concerns that Barbara rightly raises about uh, cap and trade markets and whatever goes on inside the the cap and trade markets, uh, we will be getting uh, reductions in CO2 from these carbon removal technologies.
0: So Barbara, your reaction to that?
2: Yeah, so creating this revenue stream and a system that supports carbon removal at scale and drives down prices couldn't be more important. And I so hope that you're successful.
3: Look, people and institutions are really desperate in a way that was not true five years ago to do something about their climate footprint. All right. That is just a fact. I think Barbara and I have, there's almost no daylight between us on this Uh, the historical options have failed period. So that demand for voluntarily reducing uh, one's carbon footprint is not going away. Uh, And so it's the reason I started Climate Vault was it felt like the supply side needed to be disrupted. Like, let's get some new ideas out there. And you know i've been pretty clear on the reasons i think this is a new, uh, good new idea but let's have a better idea if someone has a better idea than climate vault like i'll hold a parade for them
0: well, I'll share a personal story. I, I've also had personal experience directly with carbon offsets. A couple of years ago, I was paid $800 to the Nature Conservancy to offset my family's carbon footprint family of four. Uh, and a year later, I got a, a letter from the Nature Conservancy, please renew your donation. And I was like, wait, what? No, this was not a donation to your general operating fund. This was a donation for a specific purpose for a specific outcome. And I felt uh, cheated by that. So I went to the um, gold standard, which is in Geneva. I thought, okay, they're the gold standard. I'd heard of them, went on their website and, and bought some uh, offsets for here and there, this price in that country, and never received anything from them. And I said, wait a minute, what did I just buy? And contacted them and said, oh, sorry, we, you know, we can't print out another certification from our system. That makes sense. So I asked for my money back. So Looking at what Climate Vault is doing, I'm intrigued, and like you know, the idea of putting personal funds into an imperfect but functioning uh, cap and trade market in California, or the Northeast—that's something that I think I would uh, would check out. Um, will it achieve the um, reductions that promised? I think I'd, part of that is you know trust in Michael and 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 what they're doing, but uh, maybe it's not 100 percent, but it's better than. Uh, th- than doing nothing. But before we get to the end, you know, Michael, I was looking at that recent report, um, which touched on the social cost of carbon, which is a similar related concept. During President Obama's time, it was about $58 a ton. The next administration set the social cost of carbon at $1 to $8 a ton. You know, what is the importance of this concept, and what is the Biden administration doing to infuse it into how the U.S. confronts the costs that burning fossil fuels inflicts on all Americans?
3: Yeah, so in full disclosure, uh, I worked for the Obama administration, uh, and uh, it was uh, my idea following the president's direction uh, that the United States, and I did this jointly with my colleague Cass Sunstein, uh, should have a uniform social cost of carbon. And what is the social cost of carbon? The social cost of carbon is the reduction in climate damages in dollar terms that you would get from reducing uh, emissions by a ton of CO2. Uh, so it tells you the benefits of uh, reducing uh, CO2 emissions as you try to, as people try to do with offset programs, uh, and a, a, as you, it, it is like the key Jenga piece in climate policy because climate policy and regulatory climate policy in the U.S. requires cost-benefit analysis, uh, and you have to compare the costs of policies against the benefits. The reason one needs a social cost of carbon is. Uh, the costs are measured in dollars and the benefits are measured were measured in tons of CO2, like that's an unfair fight. We know who's going to win that one every single time. The dollars are going to win. And so this is a way of converting the benefits of reductions of CO2 into dollars. Uh, and it is allows regulations that reduce CO2 to go forward through the cost-benefit process and become rules that then we all have to comply with. Uh, bringing this Back to climate fault. uh, the Biden administration has sent set an interim figure of about uh, $51 per ton. Uh, my own view is, uh, and th- they're going to update it. My own view is that there's a very strong case for it being at least $125 a ton based on the old methods. And since it costs through climate fault about $12.50 per ton, abate uh, it, uh, that's like saying you can. Create ten times uh, the benefits. So every twelve dollars and fifty cents of cost for every ton, uh, you would be providing the world—you know, people in the United States, people in Bangladesh, people in India—the whole world about one hundred twenty-five dollars uh, of benefits. Like ten to one ratio is pretty good. Hard to get, right?
2: Yeah. So let me let me respond to that by saying, you know, for for Climate Vault, if you're successful in catalyzing the carbon removal industry and uh, bringing prices down and um, making that happen—you know—that would be tremendous and tremendously important to support. I still have questions about whether a ton is a ton, meaning we know very well how to esti- how to estimate our own emissions measuring emissions reductions is, is, is much more difficult. The cap and trade programs are complex. There is that regulatory response. And I worry about giving companies and individuals a, a cheap out to doing the hard work of reducing their own emissions. Given the uncertainty and the offset, industry and remaining uncertainty in whether an allowance credit truly equals one ton reduced. I think reducing your own emissions and buying a credit, whatever that credit is, these are not equivalent. I I believe strongly that we have, we're always responsible for our emissions and our first responsibility is to reduce our own emissions.
3: Can I talk about that for a second? Because I I think this again, this is a place where Barbara and I have slightly different viewpoints. Let me concoct an example. Suppose it's very expensive, and I think it is for most people to reduce their own emissions. Maybe they live far away from where they work, uh, or uh, you know they need to travel. They have a sick parent who they have to go travel and visit, Um, and that kind of bleeds into a morality about emissions, Uh, and my view is like, maybe that would be very, very expensive for me to reduce my emissions. uh, But I still want to make a contribution to account for my emissions. Uh, And I don't think there's anything immoral or anything wrong with using uh, reliable uh, offsets, as Climate Vault is offering, to undo my emissions. I don't think it's necessary for me to fly less, if I have a reliable way to reduce my emissions. And That's what Climate Vault is offering. And I I think it really strikes at part, I think a challenge with the climate crisis is that there is this moral element to it. But, you know, the planet doesn't care about if I reduce my emissions or if I got them done reliably some other way. Uh, The planet just cares about the tons of emissions. It doesn't give any preference to the emissions I took out of my by not flying. And I think it's important to shift the focus away from these moral questions and into questions of, well, what does a planet actually care about?
0: That's very appealing. Remember, President Bush famously said the American lifestyle is not negotiable at the at the Rio summit. And that's certainly appealing to people in some part of America who think that, you know, addressing climate means you're going to take away my hamburgers or my, my air flights. If we can have both, that would be certainly certainly appealing. Michael Greenstone is Milton Friedman, Distinguished Service Professor in Economics at the University of Chicago and founder of Climate Vault. And Barbara Haya is director of the Berkeley Carbon Trading Project at the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you both for explaining and taking us into a complicated and very important part of the climate
3: conversation. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, thank you, Greg. On this Climate One, we've been talking about rethinking carbon offsets with Barbara Haya, Michael Greenstone, and Lisa Song. To hear more Climate One Conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate is awkward and complicated. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Ariana Ambrosius is our producer and audio editor. Her audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.